Good morning. This is Phil Coover, and this is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a national commercial real estate podcast which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated real estate problems, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. I'm an attorney with Clark Hill PLC. It's a national law firm. I'm a partner in the real estate practice group. Today we have Trisha Connolly, the Managing Director of Alpha Capital CRE, to talk about the capital stack. Trisha comes on to talk about money and how everyone needs money and how to get it and what the terms are. I found it a fascinating discussion. I really I tried to ask all those questions that you always want to ask. Whenever you're talking to someone in capital markets, they like to use the lingo, the GP, the LP, the MES, the subprime, all of the different terms. And what we have here is I've tried to break it down for for you, try to ask those questions that you always want to ask. And Trisha really does a great job of explaining it all, explaining where the money can come from, what are the benefits of the different types of lenders or equity, and why you'd want different types of money coming into your capital stack and for what purposes. So I think that she just did a great job of it. You're going to learn a lot. Trisha is the Managing Director at Alpha Capital CRE, which is an investment banking firm that does commercial real estate. She is a partner on the equity and debt placement team nationwide. Trisha specializes in commercial real estate financing with over 11 years of experience, including loan restructuring, term financing, syndicated credit facilitating, construction financing, acquisition financing, advisory and joint venture equity and programmatic equity. She has advised on capital markets exceeding $2 billion. I think you're going to learn a lot from her. I know that I did. And uh, feel free to reach out to her. I'm going to put a link to her website and her bio in our show notes, which you can find on realestateforbreakfast.com. And feel free to reach out to me at pcoover at clarkhill.com. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. Today we have Trisha Connolly of Alpha Capital CRE. Trisha, thank you for coming on the show. Phil, thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about the good stuff. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about the capital stack. And so, uh, Trisha, you are a managing director at Alpha Capital CRE. You've worked for several of the big shops uh, in the world. Uh, Before you were at Alpha Capital CRE, tell us a little bit about the company. Prior to Alpha Capital? No, no, no. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about your your prior history later, but I want to know about Alpha Capital CRE. Alpha started in between 2008 and 2009 as a hedge fund placement agent firm raising institutional capital for fund to funds. Anthony and Mike started it and then in 2010 turned it over into a capital markets platform. In distress time, everybody needs money. It just depends on how much it costs. So I joined the guys three and a half years ago. We changed the company name, institutionalized the platform a little bit. We now have 11 people in our office and we optimize the best solutions for capital, whether it's debt or equity for all transactions across the country. So we do all asset classes, all your major food groups, but we also do a little unique. We've done some billboard financings, mobile home parks, 
we're financing marinas right now. So we do do some specialty asset classes, unlike a couple of the other big brokerage firms. And we go wherever our clients go. Very nice. And one thing that jumps out, if you look at the Alpha Capital website, is you style yourselves as style yourselves as investment banking for commercial real estate. Can you tell us what that kind of means to you? Yeah, so we are investment banking, capital markets, mortgage brokers, because we do equity raising, we're not just mortgage brokers. So when I was at Cushman and Wakefield, we were all part of a capital markets team. So the big brokerage houses identify with capital markets and we strictly do We identify with capital markets, but we also, because we do so much equity and we help people fundraise, whether it's on the GP side or the LP side, we call ourselves investment bankers. This is great. And for all the listeners out there, what we're going to try and do today is whenever you talk to somebody uh, like Trisha, who does, who works in capital markets, who works in debt and equity placement, they use a lot of abbreviations and terms, and we're going to break it down like GP, LP. General partner, limited partner. And we're going to talk about what everything means. Um, we're talking about preferred equity. We're talking about mezzanine debt. We're talking about JV equity. And we're just going to, we're just going to go through it. So again, I, what I think is interesting about Alpha Capital Series is a lot of times if you're going to acquire a property, you might go to a mortgage broker to try to find you a bank that's going to lend you some money to have a loan on the property and a mortgage. It's kind of the, the simple way to do it. But what, what Trisha does is that might be the best solution for, for what you're looking for, but she looks at all sorts of solutions, which is whether you want an equity partner to, to help own the building or whether you want other sorts of different types of money in order to put your deal together. And that's basically, that's the capital stack. I mean, that's what people are referring to. So what does uh, the capital stack mean to you? So if you have a buyer who's trying to take down an asset that is not stabilized and let's say they're going to put some money into it, it's a value add opportunistic because that's what everybody's doing right now is they're mm-hmm. trying to find yield. They're trying to find properties where they can increase the value once they buy it, whether they're putting TIs into the building, renovating the roof. Um, What we do is we would go and solicit, whether it's a bank, a bridge lender, a life company lender, a CMBS. Um, We do a lot of structured finance. So the capital stack to us is someone comes to us and needs everything in the capital stack. So they need debt, they need equity. So what we do is we try to optimize what type of leverage we can place on the asset. What type of lender are you going to get the most cheapest cost of capital for what you're trying to do and that differentiates whether you're putting a shovel in the ground a stabilized asset or a value-add asset and so we know who to go to depending on what stage the assets in so you're some somebody that you go to if you're if you need to help with the numbers and you need someone to figure out how it all works from a, from a money perspective yeah I mean everybody needs money right right everybody needs money even if you had infinite amounts, sometimes it makes sense to go get a partner, to go get a loan, especially when interest rates are cheap. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, All the REITs put debt on their assets, right? They all have billion dollar funds that back them or pension funds, right? So a REIT would come to us and say, I'm refinancing my shopping center down in Oak Brook. 
and we would say, okay, great, your existing debt is $20 million. Well, we can cash you out and increase the leverage a little bit. So maybe we're going to give you a loan for $24 million because your values increase that much and you're going to put some money in your pocket. Yeah. So why would they want to do something like that? Uh, right now, a lot of what we're seeing is a refinancings is a lot of people are paying off their existing debt and putting on cheaper debt today. Interest mm-hmm. rates are historically low and a lot of people want to cash out. So if somebody buys a property for $20 million and puts $4 million into it, we're probably going to be able to, in today's environment, exceed all leverage and give him 75%, no questions asked. Yeah. Just given the interest rate environment. And then they can take that extra money and they can go buy some other property. That's the idea. So you want to, CMBS, we're able to do cash out refinances. Uh, Bridge lenders, the deals when they're more not stabilized, when there's some hair on them, they're opportunistic, those are harder to do cash out. They typically want all the money to go into the property until it's stabilized, right? So you're not really cashing out. You're putting all your money into the asset and then recapping it and we'll go put long-term debt on it and cash you out. So tell people what a bridge lender is. A bridge lender provides you short-term money between three to five years in a floating rate mechanism. So it's based over LIBOR. I've seen them as short as 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. So we... We typically are doing like a three-one-one structure on a lot of deals in today's environment because people need more time to get the project going. If someone needs a, a bridge loan for 12 months, that's probably more expensive money. For sure. Um, short-term bridge loans can range 7% and up. Your traditional bridge loan, a three-year plus two one-year extension options, that can be anywhere from LIBOR plus 275. LIBOR today is roughly about one8 so 1.8 plus 2.75 to anywhere LIBOR plus 500. So you're still sub 5% and sub 7% on the high side. So this is why you hire Trisha, because rather than spending a couple hours figuring this stuff out. A couple just, hours, come on, days, you, weeks, you, months, you, years. No, you just ask her and she knows within, within a minute. Um, so you have your short-term bridge lenders, um, but Here's one question. This is just something I've always got to have the back of my mind. When people that don't invest in real estate think of a loan, they think of a 30-year mortgage on their home. But you don't see that in commercial real estate. It's usually five years, 10 years, 15 years, and it's usually interest only or interest plus a little bit of principal, and then there's a balloon payment at the end. Why? So I think... I'm sure there's a lot of opinions on that, but I think a lot of why you don't see these deals locked in for 30 years is because people want to recapitalize their their debt, right? People want to go buy something else. People don't want to necessarily hold assets for 50 years. So when you put a 10-year deal, you're locked in for 10 years. So for those 10 years, unless you want to pay a big defeasant payment and a prepayment penalty, you are going to own that asset for 10 years. If you want to sell it, someone can assume that debt, but if the interest rate was 6% last year and now interest rates are 4%, you're taking a hit on your purchase price because that interest rate now is so much lower than what it was two years ago. So life companies do do long-term 
30 year, 40 year. HUD does 40 year deals. HUD. 40 years. HUD is a financing mechanism that developers do on multifamily. HUD is ground up. You have to be a HUD approved client or you need to partner with someone who's a HUD approved client. It takes roughly nine months to close a HUD deal, Mm -hmm. but it's cheap money and it's a 40 year term. And the reason why you do that is if you know you're going to hold on to this asset long term and you're not going to do anything. Uh, But life companies do do 10, 12, 15, 20 year, 30 year. And those are typically like a Walgreens. That could be a 30 year deal Mm -hmm. because it's a 50 year lease. Mm -hmm. You know, longer duration on those deals are typically life company, single tenant, so here you just hit on something a little bit that I wanted to talk about is uh, defeasance. And so there's types of debt that if you own it for a year and you get a great deal, you sell that property and you just pay the lender back. You ask them for a, a payoff statement. and Depends what kind back. of debt you have on the property. But that's what I want to ask. Like, what kind of debt do you find has a large defeasance process or a prepayment penalty is another way to say it and what type of debt can you should you be looking for if you want the flexibility to sell in one three five years flexibility means floating rate to us in the capital markets business Mm. if you want flexibility you're going to do a floating rate loan which is the bridge deal over LIBOR right if you want flexibility you need to acquire this asset you need to figure out what to do with this asset you don't know if you want to hold it. You don't know if you want to sell it. You do a flex or you do a bank note for five years mm-hmm. and then you have a step down. So in year one, your prepayment penalty could be nothing. So for the first four years, you're going to have a prepayment penalty. And then in year 12 months before your maturity, you won't have one. CMBS is the one lender type of lending that you're always going to have defeasance. Mm-hmm. CMBS, you are locked out. until 12 to 24 months before expiration. So if we put a note on this asset right here for 10 years, you need to know that you're locked in. CMBS is great for non-life company assets that want 75% money. It's 4% money today, maybe even less depending on what type of asset it is. And it could be full-term I.O. It could be interest only the whole time. It could have a couple years of interest only, followed by 25-year amortization. That's your AM table. But if you want to optimize leverage, less cash down, CMBS is great, but you have to know you're locked in. And five-year CMBS is more expensive than 10-year CMBS. That shorter duration costs you about 25 basis points. Really? So a 10-year note is a lot cheaper for CMBS than a five-year note. It's 25 to 40, ba- 40 basis points. I just looked at it last week. Um, tell everyone a little bit about CMBS. That term was used a little bit after the downturn. You Commercial mortgage-backed securities. Right. So the Goldmans, the JP Morgans, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, they all are CMBS lenders, right? So it's based off of a bond. So when Goldman writes a $15 million deal for us, they go and securitize that note into a pool and someone buys that pool. 
So after two months, Goldman's not really your lender anymore. Mm -hmm. It goes into servicing. So that paper gets sold. So that's why... Life company and banks, it's on their balance sheet. That's the difference. CMBS, it's not on their balance sheet. They go and securitize that loan so it gets sold into a pool, whereas life insurance and bank and bridge, they hold it on their own book. So 12 months after you do a deal with a life co, a bank, or a bridge deal, bridge lender, you call them, right? They're the ones working on your deal. It's on their books. They care, right? It's on their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. CMBS has gotten a lot better. CMBS 2.0, I think we're in. Special servicing has definitely improved. If we go do a deal with Goldman, you can still call Goldman 12 months later, but you're going to have to work with a special servicer. But people would want that type of loan because it's, it's a low rate. It's a low interest rate and you're maximizing leverage. A bank typically maxes out at 60%, you know, Mm non-recourse. CMBS is 75% non-recourse. That's a lot more money they're giving to you at the same rate. Yeah. And it's non-recourse. So kind of to touch, so the other alternative that people can have is if you have an asset that has a CMBS loan and you want to sell it because it's just exploded in value and your buyer assumes your debt that's what you can do yeah Yeah, so rather than that's that's what people do is often when you sell a property you pay off the current debt Mm -hmm. you pay off the bank but sometimes you can sell a property and you transfer the obligation to yeah there's transferee provisions qualified like transferee provisions um like kind exchange exactly how you can look at it like a like kind exchange right so let's talk about another kind of interesting thing is, is a lot of people don't know, life insurance companies, same people you go to, get your term loan, I don't know, to the whole, is there a difference? So a life insurance company, here, I'll finish the question. I started on my second question before I got done with my first. So people don't realize that life insurance companies that you go, I don't know, Prudential, all mm-hmm. these other places, we're in Prudential Plaza mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. feel like that's worth mentioning. Um, that they might, they're in the business of lending money. And so people realize that yeah. the same people you're getting your life insurance from are also out Principal there. Principal and Northwestern Mutual. Yeah. yeah, they, life co's, when you think of a life company, you think of a class A asset. Hmm. And the reality is, is not a lot of real estate is class A assets, right? Great sponsor, strong balance sheet, urban right in the heart of the city or a really good suburban location a grocery anchored suburban shopping center in oakbrook or a class a office building on wacker drive those are examples of life company class a strong occupancy has really strong historicals the property's been performing well those deals in today's environment there's not a ton of them Mm-hmm. A lot of properties have a tenant that's blowing out and moving across the street or need some money to put back into the property because they need to renovate, right? So those don't qualify for life company. Life company really needs to be right down the fairway. Everything's got to check the box. So how do they get those deals? They just get, are they great to work with if you can get a life yeah, insurance? Yeah, life insurance is great, right? It's typically 70% max leverage. Right now, it's probably three and a half percent money, mm. and you can do long term depending on the duration of your rent roll. 
and they're easy to work with. They're really great to work with, but you have to have your asset needs to be that strong. All right. So Which they do. They are, they're there, right? Yeah. We're doing two life company deals right now. They are absolutely there. So you get excited when you're like, all right, the life company wants Yeah, you're like, lives. wow, this is a slam dunk. And do they have the flexibility of being able to sell? More than CMBS. Okay. A lot more flexible than CMBS. That's why people like people like to push to try to go life company before they look at CMBS. We're doing a deal in the West Loop right now where the client really wanted 70% life company money. But the truth is the tenancy is a little more mom and pop. There's two credit tenants, but the other tenants are mom and pop and local to Chicago. So life companies just not going to get comfortable with that. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, here's another question that I once heard someone say there's a developer and they, they like to work with local banks because they felt like if something goes wrong or if they miss some technicality that the local bank that they'd rather call a local bank who will give them some more flexibility than um, well certainly CMBS but then even like a private equity company mm-hmm. that puts that on because their thinking was um, a local bank is not really in the business of owning real estate, whereas a private equity company might just jump mm-hmm. on the chance to take your asset and, and do what it, what it can. Where the bank might say, all right, let's work, let's restructure this loan, mm-hmm. let's give you another 12 yeah. months to make a term. Do you think that that's a real thing? Yeah, I mean, we do we do probably 300 million of banks in Chicago's business. So we do a lot of banks, um, a lot of deals. The reality is, is there's a lot of banks in Illinois. And so if we were to take on a deal, if you told me that you wanted to do a local bank deal, we would still talk to over 40 banks and we would get you the best deal. So if you want to work with a local bank, we can do that, but we're going to go and find the best bank for you that's going to offer you the cheapest rate. Do you know all these people? Like it's amazing. Like as you talk to people, your life insurance companies, private equity. Do you just fly around talking to all of these people about the deal? I'm sure a lot of it's done by email, but yeah, I mean that, that's part of it, emails. right? Yeah. I mean that is my job is to have those relationships with the lending community and with the clients, mm-hmm. right? So yes, you do travel. It's fun because. When you have a really strong network and you know a lot of people, all those people become your clients, whether they're on the lending side or the developer side, we work with everyone. So that's why it's really nice. You do need to remember a lot of people because that is the nature of our business, but it's great. It's a very small community. (laughs) I'm sure you think so. I'm sure everyone else would be, you know. A little bit stressed out looking at all the people that they need to try to get to know. Um, that's right. what makes Alpha great. That's they know everybody. That's the that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of what makes Alpha great, I'm gonna hit you. We're gonna go, we're gonna talk in a second about. I want to talk about mezzanine and preferred and some of the you know the advanced concepts, the expert level stuff, uh, but. You said that's what makes Alpha great is, you know, you've worked at some of the bigger shops. Um, what, what kind of adva- advantages does Alpha have and, and why should someone talk to Alpha? I think it's very simple is Alpha, it takes a boutique approach on every deal that we get. It's we are really 
a part of our client's team. It's almost like our, if our email address was the same email address as you, that's how we treat a deal, is we are just an extension of your team. Mm-hmm. So we differentiate ourselves by optimizing the best capital structure. So we do do complicated deals. We do deals where there's a senior piece, there's a mez piece, there could be pref, and the sponsor needs money, right? That's a lot of different avenues. That's five different capitals going into one deal. And a lot of people don't like to work that hard, right? That's the reality. It's a lot of work to do these structured deals because you're talking to five different food groups on one deal. That's, uh, that makes total sense. I was, let's, let's get into the different types of structures because I was trying to explain kind of the basics of a development deal to someone recently, but I now realize that my explanation missed like three different levels of what you deal with. What I was saying is, oh, there's usually a general partner who's the sponsor, mm-hmm. otherwise referred to as a deal, and they take usually the most risk and they have the most physical effort in putting the deal together. But They're, they get fees for it. But yeah. That's how they, they get, get paid. fees and they have upside usually. And then there's usually a limited partner who has um, a preferred return and they have an upside, they usually come to the deal with some money. A lot of money. So typically how it works, let's just take a classic multifamily deal. Your GP is probably putting in 10% of the required equity and your LP partner is putting in 90%. Mm. So GPs, if they're bringing in an equity partner, very rare is it 50-50. We actually worked on an office deal here in River North where the GP was 50-50 with the LP. That is not common typically. Typically you see 90-10 structures. And what that means is the GP, who's all of our developers that we read about in Cranes, is putting in 10% and then they go to the private equity world. They go to the institutional world. They go to the family office, the pension funds. All of those groups are writing the 90% check. And they strike an agreement on how are they going to get paid? What does your waterfall look like? When do I get paid? What is our promote structure? And it's all, every deal is different. Yeah. Every deal is different. Yeah, people ask me all the time, what is a standard deal? Like, I... I can give you some examples yeah, of what I've seen. Absolutely. But, you know, feel free to adjust. If you feel strongly that yeah. you bring something to the table is worth more because of a certain circumstance, yep. feel free to ask for a bigger fee on yeah. that or a bigger percentage. Um, and a lot of people raise friends and family mm-hmm. on the GP side. So let's say we're doing a development deal together and we have to put in a million dollars. If you don't have a million dollars, that GP side is still your side, but you may go raise money with friends and family and then come to me to go find you an LP partner. So there's a lot of different avenues. That is why our phone rings the most, is people need money. Institutional developers, middle market developers, the small guy down the street who doesn't know what a rent roll is, and then the institutional group that just doesn't have the time or wants to diversify their equity partners. Yeah. Right. That's why our phone rings a lot is helping people structure their equity, find different partners, find more money and really trying to help them save money on their side so they can go and do more deals. Right. right. That's the reality. If a developer puts in five million dollars on one project and they only have six million dollars, 
they're only going to be able to do one project a year. So you have to differentiate your different buckets of capital for each deal. Yeah, and one other thing that you, you mentioned is just that sometimes developers, even if they have a source that's kind of an unlimited source, they just want different partners yep. because the more partners you work with, yep. the more Diversification is key in our on. business. You yeah. never want to have all of your deals with one lender, right? You never want to have all of your deals with one equity group because times change. The world is constantly changing in our market. So real estate is always evolving. So that's why you want to diversify as much as you can. Okay. So we've talked about uh, the the GP equity and the limited partner equity. Tell us about mezzanine debt. So mezzanine debt is called subordinate financing. Mm-hmm. We call it sub debt, right? Subordinate financing, mezzanine or preferred equity. The real difference is whether you take a second lien on a property, which a lot of senior lenders don't like. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing a deal with Associated Bank, they would rather you not take a second lien on the property as a mezzanine. So that's why preferred equity typically has come into play, which is a little more expensive than mez. But also you can, this is where it gets confusing, but you can do a UCC filing. So you're not actually taking a second lien for mezzanine debt. And all that means is you are negotiating an inner creditor agreement, which you guys deal with all the time as attorneys, which those documents can be brutal, right? Yeah. People hate them. It's, well, if this guy doesn't perform, when do I get to take back this property? And if they're not going to get this leased up in the next six months, well, then I get to step in and put in my new leasing broker. It's all of the, it's all of decision rights. It's if you're not doing your job, I'm going to step in and do it right. That's literally what it is. And this intercreditor agreement is between the senior lender and your sub-debt piece, whether it's MEZ or preferred equity. For the purposes of this call, MEZ is cheaper than preferred equity. Both of them are debt instruments. They are debt instruments to increase your leveraging in your capital stack. So you don't have to go and find an LP partner, right? Yeah. Mezzanine and preferred equity, just if you're doing a 70% loan, your MEZ gets you to 80, and maybe your preferred equity piece gets you to 86%. So you just found 16% money from a debt-like instrument that now you don't have to have an LP equity partner. I love it. I love it. you also said for the purposes of this call. Uh, <laughs> but also, you know, just a quick example. So if you need 10 million bucks to do a project yep. and you have JP Morgan is loaning you 7 million uh, as your first priority mortgage. Senior loan, senior loan. It's your senior loan. So you're saying, I need three million more bucks. How am I gonna get that? Well, we don't do 100% financing because that would be crazy and the United States doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, But we would try to, if it's a multifamily deal, we could try to get you 90%. Yeah. So we'd figure out how to get you to $9 million so you're only putting 1 million down. If it's not multifamily, we can get you to 85%. Maybe 86 because we're aggressive. But why is that? What's the difference? Why is multifamily? Are you able people to go this? higher leverage on multifamily deals? Safer, safer a lot. I mean, it's twelve month leases, right? A multifamily deal is twelve month leases. He signs a lease, you sign a lease, I sign a lease. All these other assets are complicated leases, different cam pools. This tenant's paying this utility, this tenant's, you know, there's a lot more going on on other asset classes. Mm. Multifamily is 
build the property, get the tenants in there, get it leased up, get it stabilized. All right. So one thing, just to say a little bit more about preferred equity, and you explained it great, but it's just, it's basically, a, it, it's like debt, a debt-like instrument, as you said, but it comes in the form of being equity, which is just um, a, really a unique concept that I don't, I don't, you know, it doesn't come up nearly as often. Right. But, but a lot of people. But it can be useful. Yeah. It, it's ex- extremely useful, especially if you have a couple larger deals and you're trying to maximize your capital stack and minimize putting a ton of money into the deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So preferred equity is treated as debt, but has an acknowledgement agreement, not an intercreditor, but an acknowledgement agreement making you as the developer aware that this guy is putting money in and you need to acknowledge that if you mess up, he's going to be able to step in, right? It's all about if something goes wrong on the asset, that's why these documents exist. All it is is in the worst case scenario, if you file default or some recession happens and you're just not able to get this property leased up, it's buy, right, sale provisions, property management decisions, all major decisions they want to be more a part of. Yeah, and, and the reason why you might want to do more debt is because uh, you have a, a fixed cost there on a yearly basis and equity is going to share in the upside. Correct. So share in the profits. They're not participating with you. It's yeah. just a, it's just like paying your senior lender, you're paying your preferred equity lender. Some of it you pay current. The other part, once it's stabilized, you pay it, it's becomes accruing over time. So we have touched on a lot of subjects. I would say this is a thicker discussion than some of the other <laughs> other topics we've had. Are you confused? Are you following I'm along? Not, I, I'm following. Um, but it was, you know, it was dense. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of information there. But uh, I don't know how to dumb it down, Phil. <laughs> I don't want you to. I mean, you explained it great. So. Trisha, is there anything else we should know about Alpha Capital CRE except people should know how to get in touch with you? I'm going to put, whenever we do these podcasts, we put it on realestatebreakfast.com and I always link to the website uh, and usually the profile of our guest and Trisha's email address is right on there. So Googling also I'm sure would bring, bring you right up. Yeah, we... Very simple. Think of us when you need money and we'll tell you how you need to get the money. Very simple. Everybody needs money and we tell you where we get it from and how to structure it. That's great. And do you, does it work in reverse? Do you, do people with money, um, funds, REITs, oh, banks, everybody. come to you and say, I'm looking for Yeah, projects. it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or you don't have money. You still need it. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. If you have $100 in your pocket or you have $1,000 in your pocket, you still need money. It's just different costs of capital fit different clients. All right. Trisha, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice, and no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. 
You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.